You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. You all know how I love me some science, how I love me some empiricism, some data. So it was with some shock and alarm that I read headlines all over the web last week advising people to run from anyone who is friends with an ex. It was on Esquire, it was on L, it was in The Guardian, Vice, BBC, everywhere. Run! If you're with somebody, if you're dating someone, and he or she, but mostly he, is friends with an ex, run. That person is a dangerous psychopath. Now this contradicts advice that I've given routinely that when you are with somebody, you're dating somebody and they're on good slash friendly terms with an ex, not creepily close, not still fucking the ex, not spending all of their time with the ex, not dumping loads in you and then cuddling on the sofa and watching Game of Thrones with the ex, but on good friendly terms with the ex. So this is a good sign. Most of the people that we date over the course of our lives are going to be exes because you date a lot of people. Some of us marry a lot of people, Donald Trump, and you end up with, if you're lucky, one person for the long haul. So we have a lot of exes. Be good if we could be nice and decent to our exes and on good terms with them. And I've always told people that if someone speaks ill of all of their exes, if all of their exes are bitches and whores, or all of their exes are bastards and assholes, they're the common denominator in a lot of shitty fucked up relationships. They're probably the bitch slash whore slash bastard slash asshole. And you should run from that person. So I was alarmed to see this advice everywhere based on science, on data, suggesting on this new study suggesting that I had been wrong low these many years and that I would have to walk this advice back on a podcast and eat crow. And then I did what we should all do. I did what apparently none of the reporters who kicked out these stories did. I read the study. And not only did I read the study, I called the lead author of the study, the person who conducted the study, to ask him if he and his colleagues really thought that this was the case. If he thought that his study suggested that people should not date their exes or anyone dating an ex is a psychopath. And he said, no, absolutely not. The study has been misreported. So the author of the study, Justin Mogilski, PhD candidate at Oakland University, and his study, which was headlined everywhere, the, the, the boiled down takeaway for headline writers at blogs and newspapers everywhere was run from any guy who is friends with his ex. Here's the actual title of the study, Staying Friends with an Ex, Sex and Dark Personality Traits Predict Motivations for Post-Relationship Friendship. Post-Relationship Friendship, add that to your acronyms, PRFs, post-relationship friendships. And what they found in conducting this study, that there were seven broad reasons why people might remain friends with their exes. And all they found was people with quote-unquote dark personality traits, not psychopaths, not serial killers, not monsters. And those dark personality traits are people who tend to be a little bit more manipulative or aggressive in their interpersonal relationships. Those are dark personality traits. And we all have some of them. We all have, to some degree, a little dark personality trait in us. The capacity to manipulate exists within all of us. But people with more pronounced dark personality traits out of the seven reasons for staying friends with their exes, people with dark personality traits were likelier to cite two of the seven-ish reasons. 
One being pragmatism, that people with dark personality traits who stayed friends with their exes, likelier to cite pragmatism, which is the ex had a lot of money, the ex knew how to fix or repair things, the ex had desirable social connections that you still wanted to tap into, you wanted to be able to network. And the other reason was sexual access, which is exactly what it sounds like. You still want to be able to fuck that person, so you're going to stay friends with them. But people who didn't have dark personality traits also cited those two reasons in addition to the others. And people with dark personality traits also cited the other reasons. It's just that they were a little likelier to cite pragmatism and sexual access. And this doesn't mean anybody who's friends with an ex has a greater share of dark personality traits than somebody else who isn't friends with their ex. It means not that at all. And yet that is how it was spun everywhere. So it was a relief to me personally and professionally to get Justin Mogilski, the author of the study, on the phone to speak about his research and his data. And it wasn't that hard to do. I clicked through to the abstract from one of the stories that got it wrong, looked at the abstract, looked at the, the, the published paper, and there was Justin Mogilski's name, which is hyperlinked to his email address. And I just emailed the motherfucker and he gave me his phone number. We jumped on the phone and we talked about it which I guess is above the capacity of the writers at Vice and Esquire and L. They're not, they don't have email technology yet, it would seem, it would appear. They don't know how to click a link. They see that little bright, shiny name that's a different font, different color than everything else around it. They don't think, maybe I'll click on that and ask the guy what his study actually says before I write my headline, before I advise people to dump decent Folks that they're in good relationships with just because they're friends with an ex, which plays into this crazy straight people bullshit. I should never date somebody who's dated an ex. You should never date somebody who's friends with an ex. This insecurity and paranoia. This study was misused to buttress and support. This study was misused to undermine good, decent-ish relationships everywhere because people who are dating people who are friends with their exes are constantly badgering those of us in the advice racket. For advice about what to do about this quote-unquote problem that their current boyfriend or girlfriend sometimes sees or speaks with or has lunch with, occasionally swaps an email or a text with, says hello to on the street when I'm with them, and this is a huge problem. And now, thanks to how this study was misrepresented, these people, these insecure bags of slop who are raking their current boyfriends and girlfriends over the coals for being on decent terms with their exes – now think that they have science on their side. And they don't. So I stand behind the advice I've been giving forever. Somebody on good terms with the next, probably good relationship prospect. Somebody who says nothing but bad things, shitty things about their exes. Someone who the, all their exes want nothing to do with them. Stay away from that person. I got no data for that. That's just anecdote and hunch and common sense on my part. But you know what? All those people out there who say run from people who are friends with their exes, they don't got any data either. They've attempted to misuse Justin's data, but Justin ain't having it and I ain't having it. And you don't put up with it whenever you see a report in a newspaper, on a blog, in a chitty chatty site characterizing the results of some study. Click through, read the study. It might be wrong the way it's being characterized, likely wrong, often wrong. Always click through to at least read the abstract, which takes about 30 seconds. 30 seconds that all the writers at L and Esquire and Vice coulda, woulda, shoulda spared before they ran to their computers to post about Justin's study.
And the title again of Justin's study, which you can find at sciencedirect.com, staying friends with an ex, sex and dark personality traits predict motivations for post-relationship friendship by Justin K. Mogilski and Lisa L.M. Welling. All right, coming up on today's episode, 500 episode of the Savage Lovecast, we've got David Schmader, author of Weed, A User's Guide, and coming up at the end of the show, our first and longest serving guest expert, Dr. Barack, is here to celebrate with me. All on today's show, with a ton of your questions. Hi, Dan. I'm a 37-year-old straight male in an open relationship with a primary partner. We've been together for a year and a half. At her request, we don't talk much about the details of our dates. We tried it early on, and she ended up having a lot of negative feelings about it. So our policy now is that we have a contract of what is acceptable and not, and after scheduling the date, we try not to give the other person too much information they wouldn't want and can't unhear. I'm typically the one who takes control in my dates, making the first move, being the more dominant one in bed, though I'd say I'm really a switch. I recently started dating a very, very toppy woman. Immediately, the sexual charge and energy went through the roof with sects of her sending me dick pics with her strap on and my sending pics of myself tied up or in a submissive, vulnerable position. After our first date, I realized that so much of my sexuality has been repressed by years of shame and guilt about wanting to be controlled and dominated. When I look at the porn and erotica I've read since an early age, it's almost all about submission. It just clicked for me when I met this person and I started to see patterns in my life. I've even started to question my sexuality and wonder if my hetero exterior is just because I'm afraid of what would happen to me if I admitted I'm totally turned on by the idea of sucking a cock. It's opened up a lot of questions for me. My primary partner is GGT, but not super kinky. And since we don't really disclose the details of our dating life, I don't know how or if I should let her know that I'm evolving into a much kinkier person. It feels so important to the person I am and I'm becoming, and I want to let my primary partner know without scaring her away. You may have a case here of new relationship energy crossed with newly discovered kinks or passions for kinks that you were well aware of possessing previously. This woman, this toppy dominant woman who's sending you pictures of her wearing a strap on during your initial flirtations, she brings out the sub in you, the sub that was always there in you. You say you've described yourself for a long time when it came to kink and BDSM as a switch. So that subby side was there and you were aware of it, but the subby side is totally what this woman taps into totally what she brings out in you totally what works about you two together is that subby shit that's always been a part of your sexual makeup and i think running to your primary partner at this point this early on in your new interaction with this toppy secondary partner and unloading on her about how excited you are about this and elevating perhaps mistakenly elevating or erroneously elevating sub now to your primary identity because of the new relationship energy that's making subbiness feel so important and so hot because this woman, because it clicks with this woman, might be a mistake. Give it some more time and see if what this woman is stirring up in you is case specific, if it's about you and her and your sexual chemistry with her and this particular interaction, or if she's indeed bringing something to the forefront in you that's now going to be paradoxically dominant in your sexual expression and your fantasy life and in your identity. But that's only going to emerge and reveal itself to you in time. Let this new relationship run its course. I don't mean let it end or wait till it ends because maybe it won't end, but let the new relationship energy thing drain from it. And see then if indeed she's 
drawn something to the fore that is now dominant, your submissiveness now dominant, or if it was just about her. The intensity of your new experience of your submissiveness is just really about her and it's special and it's unique and unique to her and therefore not necessarily something that you need to violate the no TMI DADT relationship or arrangement that you have with your primary partner. And then you'll know if it's something, this newly dominant submissiveness that you've unearthed with this woman, you'll know then if it's something you need to violate your no TMI DADT arrangement with your primary partner by disclosing. Hello, Dan. I am a straight black American man. I'm going to get quickly to the reason why my race is important here. Um, quickly, when I was 20 years old, I was a college student in Montgomery, Alabama, um, attending an HBCU, and um, I had a job where I was um, a server. One of my regulars was an older black American woman, and she would come in often. We would have great conversations and, and all of that. Everything was good. And one of those conversations, she told me that she would like to manage me. At the time, I had no idea what she was talking about. Um, so <laughs> the next time she came in, she explained it, and she said she wanted me to be an escort. Um, I'm from a very small town in Alabama before I even got to that that kind of country city, which was Montgomery. So I didn't really understand what this was. I didn't know what was going on. Um, she explained what it would be, and I'm not going to lie. As a young male, I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, sign me up, right? She didn't promise me a lot of money, but she said she would promise me clients and that I would get paid. And as a college student, almost any money is a lot of money to you, right? So she said she chose me because I hold good conversation. I was knowledgeable about things, um, and I was charming. So she figured that would be attractive to some of the clients. She also wanted to know how well endowed I was. So I had to do that as well. So uh, one of my very first clients was an older white American lady. Before we really got into anything later that night, she asked me, uh, one of the first questions was, are you sure you willing to do anything to please me? And I said, absolutely. That's just what I'm here for. And um, she drove to this house. Uh, I didn't know that it was the house that she shared with her husband. And as soon as we get upstairs to the bedroom, her husband was sitting there facing the bed. As a younger black American male in Alabama, it was, I, was, I was afraid. I'm not going to lie, I was. I didn't know what was going to happen. And she told me that he wanted to watch me fuck her. Still kind of bizarre to me from being what I, where I was from at the time, but I went along with it. And early into what was going on, he got comfortable with calling me nigger constantly, telling his wife to fuck that nigger dick and fuck my wife, you dirty nigger boy and stuff or whatever. And each time it would slow down my momentum of, of what was going on. Um, she assured me that he, he isn't racist. It's just something that he liked to do and he liked to say. Because of that, I got three more clients who like to pick 
younger black American males and call them nigger while they have sex with them. And um, I've suppressed those memories for a long time, and up to now they're, they're just starting to come back. And I'm starting to feel really guilty, kind of dirty, or whatever, that I let that happen. And I'm trying to figure out, like, how should I process this? How should I feel about this now? And I'm a husband and a father. <laughs> like, I, I don't think that husband and father mean that I shouldn't have done the stuff that I did back then, but how do I process this now? You should process this not as something that you did that was terrible, but as something that was done to you that was terrible. That this was sprung on you after you'd already kind of bought in when you were servicing your clients and they had this agenda that went to a very dark and emotionally tricky place and they just went there without your consent. You were in the moment, you were violated by this guy, psychologically violated by this guy and his wife. And then, you know, it doesn't matter that she assured you that he isn't racist, which you can't know for sure. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Clearly his fantasies are impacted by our racist culture and racist messaging and images and stereotypes about black men. And that aroused him. And there are people who are turned on by these kinds of racially charged cuckolding fantasies who are absolutely racists. And there are people who are turned on by these racially charged cuckolding fantasies who are absolutely not racists. If they wanted to do this with you, if these other couples that then booked you also wanted to do this with you, they needed to have a conversation with you in advance of the sex play and obtained your consent and made sure that this was okay with you and okay for you, a place that you could go, a role that you could play, a word that you could hear without feeling demeaned, degraded, diminished, damaged. They didn't do that. And so they took advantage of you. They violated you. You were violated. That's how you should understand and process this. There's been a lot written about cuckolding. There are features at Nerve and Salon, at Vice, at The Atlantic. If you do a little searching on the term cuckolding, well, if you just search the term cuckolding, you're going to find a whole lot of porn. But if you do some searching and you find some of these articles that have been written that really unpack the fetish, including the racial element for many people in this fetish, you will see that there are people out there who enjoy this. You will also see that there are black men out there who enjoy playing this role. And you will see that some black men can hear the things that you heard said without being damaged, without feeling like they've been harmed or actually called those things. That This is a, a role they are playing, that they are stepping into and stepping out of, that they are using these terms in this context in a consensual way for everyone's mutual pleasure. And again, it's consent. Consent is the magic ingredient. You did not consent to this in advance. It was sprung on you in the moment. And then you felt in for a penny, in for a pound, and you kept going to this place where initially you were dragged and you didn't want necessarily to return, but the money and the undertow of the money and the feeling that you know, you wanted to do right by your clients and right by your madam. And you just feel really compromised by everything that went down, however many years ago this was. And you can own that. You can feel compromised by it. You can feel 
bad about it, but you should feel bad about it in the sense that something bad was done to you. You did not do something bad to yourself. This bad thing was done, was sprung on you. And I'm sorry, this was shitty. The way this played out was shitty. And racist or not, and Alabama, probably racist, but racist or not, these people, your long ago, long lost clients, they owe you an apology, an apology you're probably never going to get. Even if you could track them down, you might not get it. They owe you an apology and you owe yourself absolution. You don't have to go through life feeling bad about what happened to you. You can let yourself off this hook. I think that's how it would be helpful for you to process this. I think that's how it would be helpful for you to understand this. Hi, my name's Pheasant, and I live in Kansas. My question is why you guys talk a lot about politics. I'd love to hear you guys talk about third-party politics, like the Independent Party, the Green Party, and the Libertarian Party. I'm a huge Green Party supporter. I'm voting for Jill Stein, and I realize that, you know, people say if you vote for these, it's just a wasted vote, and it's a vote for the Republicans. But, you know, I also feel we need to start sending a message to Washington and to our political leaders that we're sick and tired of this two-party system and candidates who are controlled by corporations and special interest groups, and they can't piss off their donors, you know, because they buy the votes. So I'm just wondering why you guys never talk about it, because I think Jill Stein, she's a member of the Green Party, she's amazing. And for the people that bitch and moan about Hillary didn't always support gay rights and Bernie didn't always support this, you know, I agree with you, Dan. I think it's ridiculous. I think people can change. And that's what we want. You know, we try to get people to, hey, stop being a homophobic asshole or, hey, stop being a racist prick. You know, the but, you know, the Green Party has never changed. They've always supported gay rights, equality for all, the environment. All right, blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I had to stop you. Yeah, let's talk about the Green Party for just a moment or the or, or third parties getting a, a third party movement off the ground here in this country because we are sick of the two party system. Here's how you fucking do that. You run people not just for fucking president every four fucking years. If the, the I have a problem with the Greens. I have a problem with the Libertarians. I have a problem with these fake attention-seeking grandstanding green slash libertarian party candidates who pop up every four years like mushrooms in shit saying that they're building a third party. And those of us who don't have a home in the Republican Party, don't have a home in the Democratic Party, can't get behind every Democratic position or Republican position should gravitate toward these third parties and help build a third party movement by every four fucking years voting for one of these assholes like Jill fucking Stein who I'm sure is a lovely person. She's only an asshole in this aspect. If you are interested in building a third party, a viable third party, you don't start with president. You don't start by running someone for fucking president. Where are the Green Party candidates for city councils, for county councils, for state legislatures, for state assessor, for state insurance commissioner, for governor, for fucking dog catcher? I would be so willing to vote for Green Party candidates who are starting at the bottom, grassroots, bottom up, building a third party, a viable third party. You don't do that by trotting out the reanimated corpse of Ralph fucking Nader 
every four fucking years. Or his doppelganger, whoever it is now, Jill Stein, and some asshole to be named four years from now. You start by running grassroots local campaigns. And there have been, and I'm sure we're going to hear from lots of people out there listening, there have been a couple of Green Party candidates who've run in other races here and there across the country, but no sustained effort to build a Green Party nationally. Just this griping, bullshitty, grandstanding, fault-finding, purity-testing, holier-than-thouing that we are all subjected to every four fucking years by the Green Party candidate and the folks, including you, caller, and I love you and I respect you and we're having this debate and I'm not treating you with kid gloves because I respect you, who are fooled by them, who are sucked into this bullshit, who are tricked by these grandstanding, attention-seeking, bullshit-spewing charlatans into wasting your vote which is what you are going to do. I'm sorry to say, to circle back to the top of your call, you are essentially, if you're voting for Jill Stein, helping to potentially elect Donald J. Trump, president of these United States, which would be a catastrophe, which is what some people say that they want. People supported Ralph Nader in 2000 and said there was no difference between Al Gore and George W. Bush. Therefore, we could all afford to throw our votes away protest style on Ralph Nader, who had no hope of getting elected. Because there was no difference between Bush and Gore. These same people at the same time said that George Bush was so manifestly, obviously terrible that he would bring the revolution if he got himself elected somehow. They didn't say that about Gore. He wouldn't bring the revolution. They're exactly the same, exactly as awful, but one would bring the revolution and one wouldn't, which means they weren't exactly the same and they weren't equally awful. And we're hearing the same thing now about Hillary and Donald. That they're both equally awful, they're both equally terrible, corrupt two-party system, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. Fuck them both, fuck both their houses, vote for Jill Stein. And if Donald should get elected, oh, he's so terrible, so much worse than the equally awful Hillary Clinton, that his election will bring the revolution. It's bullshit. The revolution did not come in 2000 when George W. Bush got close enough to winning to steal the White House. It will not come if Donald J. Trump gets his ass elected. Disaster will come. And the people who suffer are not going to be the pasty white Green Party supporters of pasty white Jill Stein and her pasty white supporters. The people who suffer are going to be people of color, people of minority faiths, queer people, women. Don't do it. Don't throw your vote away on Jill Stein slash vote for bank shot style Donald Trump. And if you want to build a viable third party, more power to you. I could see myself voting for a green candidate for president in 25 years after I've seen green party candidates getting elected to state legislators, getting elected to governorships, getting elected to Congress. Then you can run some legitimate motherfucker for president. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with David Schmader. He's a writer and performer who's been living and working in Seattle since 1991. And a lot of his work has involved me. So maybe there's some log rolling here in this interview. In the 90s, I directed his solo play Straight in Seattle, New York. In the aughts, we worked together at The Stranger, my home paper. And today I'm going to talk to him about his new book, Weed, The User's Guide. Dave Schmader is the kindest, bravest, warmest, and most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. How you doing? You nailed that. Good work. I'm doing great. Now I turn over the <laughs> queen of hearts and you have to kill someone at my request? So you want. Just point. <laughs> That's a pop culture reference for people <laughs> over 60 who might be listening today. <laughs> so tell us about the book. It is called Weed the User's Guide, and I am the user, and this is a guide I wrote. 
I see my name's on the cover. It's true. Required reading for longtime <laughs> potheads and new users alike. Right. And as far as like explaining what the book is, it's kind of easier to explain what it is not. And when I was approached to write a weed book, I was like, I would like to read a, write a weed book. That and you, has, wait, wait, you were approached to write a weed book because you are the world's biggest <laughs> pothead, but a productive pothead, not a cliche, can't get anything done pothead. You are a daily pot smoker. Sure. And a hyper productive contributing human being. Yeah. And then, and I, and then because of, well, uh, I also got to write about it like as a job, which was unusual because a lot of the writing was during when it was illegal, but it was. Here at The Stranger, you wrote a lot of articles about pot. We wrote a lot of articles about pot. And having smoked with you and the publisher, I felt safe that you would not one day be like, you're that guy who does that illegal thing and you're fired. (laughs) Um, so a lot of that was writing, writing for The Stranger, writing the column that I wrote here. Um, and just kind of having opportunities to say out loud, like I did this and at the time I was blissfully high without any repercussions. So that kind of led to, oh, he's someone who says things about smoking pot that are intelligent in and public. things people need to know, intelligent things people need to know, especially as pot becomes legal in state after state. Washington, yes. Colorado at the same time, now Oregon, now Alaska. Where else? Who's uh, next? I don't know who is next. It's up to the voters. But And then – I'm actually more excited of the people who kind of have the laws but haven't made the leap to recreational yet. So these kind of only us in Oregon have sta- um there are probably a couple more Colorado where you can pop into a store. But mm-hmm. even Oregon, they're striving to catch up to our stores. There's this progression that we get to watch in state after state. It's a whole new world here. Like you drive down the street and there is a pot shop. They're like a liquor store, but for pot and people are strolling in and out. People of all ages, races, classes. It's presumably who can tell by looking what religion, what imaginary friends someone might have. And it's just instantly within a couple of months of the store's opening just became an everyday in the background part of the fabric of the city fact. Yeah. Pot stores. After how many decades of this idiotic war on drugs? How many decades of, oh, I want to smoke this joint, but I don't want to get seen. and <laughs> You don't want the neighbors to smell it. Don't want to get in trouble with the police. And now there's the pot shop on the corner, the little shop on the corner <laughs> selling pot. It is amazing. It is amazing. And I, I always, I wonder if there will be some, it'll be interesting, like traffic statistics for the past five years of work. There's going to be way more tickets for driving under the speed limit. <laughs> I've just heard about that from drivers of like, there's this thing where, you know, a stone driver, they're really trepidatious. They're really slow. They're all like everyone's suddenly 90 and out for a drive and maybe they'll be plowing through farmer's markets like a 90 year old soon but hopefully not no yes oh is this a pro farmer's market podcast yes you should have warned me we're very pro we don't want to see the squashes squashed (laughs) what are the three things people should know about pot legal or illegal um don't believe what the government's told you thus far maybe they'll get and who wait wait who has who who believes what the government has told us about pot we, we would be shocked. But remember that terrifying moment when it was one of the early Republican debates where everyone marched out these arguments like it was 1972? They're like, pot will kill your baby in 19, the crib. 1972 is actually pretty good for a Republican debate. It's usually <laughs> 1922. Just they were – I meant they were going more with like old school like – the pre-Reagan, but just like old school war on drugs stuff where pot was as bad as PCP, as bad as heroin. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked to see it, it was um, – what was the lady who fell off the stage? Carly Fiorina. Her. She's so good at falling off stages. She, she's, she's right <laughs> she up there with future. Gary Bauer and <laughs> Bob Dole. Um, there were, and her and Chris Christie both often come out with this stuff where you're like looking at your watch going, what? Are you kidding? You're <clears throat> just talking about weed in that way that no one who has ever met anyone who's ever smoked weed can ever believe. Okay. That was number one. <laughs> number two. Um, 
okay, there's a whole new world of edibles. You would think a cookie will be a better on-ramp to weed for a new user than something on fire. It is not true. It's completely counterintuitive. Edible weed takes a long time to land. It's hard to gauge your dose. It's very easy to overdose. You don't want to Maureen Dowd yourself. Right, no Maureen Dowd. And so smoking, it's a little gross because it's on fire and there's ash and you cough, but you get your dose right away. It lands in one or two minutes. It's much safer for newbies. Number three? Um, Clean your bong. Treat it like a French press. I completely agree. Jumping back to edibles, I prefer edibles. I do too. I like not knowing how high I'm going to get. <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's the thing about smoking is you get as high as you're going to get right away. And I'm sitting here with the very first person I ever got high with when I was 36 years old. Hello. David turned me on to pot. And, you, you know, you smoke and you get as high as you're going to get. And then it's, you're going to come down from there. Right. And with edibles, particularly before – Legal edibles, which was you know the exact dose you're going to get. You'd make a batch of cookies and you would look at that cookie going, I wonder how powerful that cookie is. I have no way of knowing. And you'd have to like have half the cookie and you would eat half a cookie and you'd be like, all right, I'm high. How high am I going to get? And like two hours later, you're much higher and you're like, it can't get any higher than this. And then you're higher still. And for me, that letting go into pot, that being like helpless in the face of it is, is the real pleasure. Uh, that's that to me feels like an advanced sport and i understand exactly what you're talking about although i kind of like knowing how getting my dose from edibles and it hits and sticks and sticks around for a long time um but it's definitely an advanced placement sport or i guess a black diamond trail we would call it double double diamond <laughs> oh, experts only yes so you recommend smoking for newbies edibles for experienced players yes and edibles for people who are looking for escapism but are also very patient and responsible about waiting for two hours after eating something and then without saying, I'm not feeling it, taking more and winding up in a doubt hole. So I read your book and I thought, this is a necessary book as we move into a legal weed culture and people should read it because there's a lot of common knowledge, sort of received wisdom about alcohol consumption mm -hmm. because it's so folded into our social lives and our, our family lives and we watched our parents drink and you know you go to a bar or a restaurant and there are people incorporating alcohol into their enjoyment of food pot is as easily incorporated into those things but it hasn't been and so there isn't a lot of received wisdom or cultural knowledge that's been sort of passed on Pot was something you learned about at college or from friends, just yeah, like you learned the about dumpster. Yeah, yeah, just like you learned about oral sex. <laughs> you didn't learn about oral sex around the dinner table with mom and dad, hopefully. <laughs> and so we, people need to be brought up to speed on right. pot is uh, a cultural thing and a social thing, right? And particularly people who didn't smoke earlier on, so they weren't behind the dumpster. They didn't smoke in college. And they didn't get that kind of communal lore wisdom that eventually comes across of oh, you pass the bong this way, or oh, <laughs> you should bring something if you're not the one supplying pot. Little etiquette things. And now because because of the legality, there there's a number of people who were just who don't like doing things that are illegal. We've talked a little about this, and it's very weird for queers because. As a gay person of a certain age, you know that there are laws that are not we were respectable. Putting, we were putting things in our mouths that we weren't allowed to under the law for a long time. Yeah, it really required people – A dick, a people, joint, <laughs> a dick, a joint. What's the difference? They're both illegal. To just translate the law of like does that really apply to me? And as it becomes legal, I realize, oh, there are lots of people. Lots of them are lawyers and they have this oath where they can't do anything illegal. And now they can smoke weed and they don't – they're kind of starting from square one. Um, as far as lore and etiquette and what to do when you're high. and What's the best thing to do when you're high? Right now, I would say watch Robert Altman's Three Women. I'm the only one on earth who thinks this is the right thing to do. Okay, clearly the right thing to say is 69 with another mm -hmm. high person. No. Absolutely. It's the best thing an American can do. No, <laughs> no, no. I don't, I'm against 69ing on principle in any condition. You hate math. <laughs> 
I do. I do. You're weird. The best thing to do when you're high <laughs> is to watch Tosh.0. Wow. Dark. <laughs> Actually, the only way to watch Tosh.0 is when you're high. You prefer high. that to a butt in your face? Well, they're not mutually exclusive phenomenon. If you position <laughs> I the guess TV watching in the right Tosh. way, Tosh.0 is a butt in your face. You can, you can tape a laptop to, or you can <laughs> tape a tablet to somebody's back and they can hold it behind their head while they sit on your face and you can look up and watch Tosh.0 as you eat their ass. I'm a problem solver. I'm. You called me really ambitious and productive, but it doesn't sound like I am compared to you in this Tosh rimming situation. All right. Speaking of problem solving, we have some questions from callers that are pot related that we're going to put to you now. Hey, Dan, 29 year old uh, living in America. I had a question. My good friend has been dating a guy for about a year now, and uh, he smokes quite a bit of marijuana. He's tried to cut back a little bit, but. He still smokes from month to month, and it bothers the crap out of my friend. It really does. little backstory on her. Her dad used to smoke quite a bit, and it kind of, you know, drove a wedge between her and her dad, and now he's kind of having issues with that. And I keep telling her that it's not a big deal if he finds a, if her boyfriend finds a way to, you know, hide it better or whatever, then it shouldn't be a big deal, but just can't handle it. So, I mean, if you could shed any light on that, I would be really, really appreciative. I don't know what to do. Can someone smoke too much pot? Yes, absolutely. It's an expensive thing. It can rob you of kind of personal agency. There's all sorts of things. You can do all sorts of things too much for the wrong reason. Okay. Can you dictate to a romantic partner how much pot they can or cannot smoke? I would aim for more specific needs that are going unmet than just – Especially since this woman's response to, to weed is so emotional, and it's hard to argue with that. And it's so, tied to a lousy childhood that yeah, she associates with her shitty parent parenting shittily because he was smoking so much pot. If and this, maybe he was smoking too much pot, yeah. and it impacted his parenting and made his parenting shittier. And she's you know looking at I this boyfriend she, thinking, how shitty a boyfriend is he going to be if he smokes so much pot? Now you. 50% of that, I would have guessed, would be like the smell. And if he could simply move to edibles, she could avoid an entire world of past trauma because of the smell of her old stinky dad who was emotionally unavailable. The sense memory. Yes. I, well, I think it's also, it's also what I recommend to people who smoke too much weed is move to edibles. You have to be patient. You have to wait. You have to actually pay attention to how you feel. It's not just – I think a lot of over-pot smokers – I know it's been the case with me. is like I hate cigarettes, but it's like, do I just love smoking? There is something beautiful about having a puff. Mm-hmm. And the times I've smoked too much pot is because I was smoking kind of habitually. The ritual of smoking. Right. And once I moved to like, oh, no, really check in with like how much dose gives you what feeling you like and having to pay attention to that instead of the obliterating bong hits until the end of the world feeling. Would it be fair for this woman to say to her boyfriend or for this man to say to his friend and encourage her to say to her boyfriend that he has to pick between pot and her? Absolutely. You like, think that's fair? Yeah. And if if he can't like – if someone gave me that throwdown, I'd be like, bye. <laughs> you would pick but, pot. Yeah, well, because I would want someone who, well, who probably enjoyed pot too for that 69 reason. Um, <laughs> Which is the only condition. Uh, maybe, maybe that's what makes 69ing work. Maybe if both people are high, then you can 69. <laughs> Do you, would you keep dating short people? What's going on? Do you just miss? It's just, I just think it's an impractical, unpleasant sex act. Blow or be blown. Oh, but to no. like, to, you know, to blow and be blown at the same time, like your focus is just so divided in a not pleasant way. So I don't think that's too, I mean, you're allowed to ask your partner for anything. If your kink is, I don't like you smoking pot, aren't you allowed to support your kink? 
Yeah, if the price of admission to be with you is not smoking pot, you can lay that out there. But don't be surprised if they're not willing to pay that price of admission. Right. So and then what? Then you start going, can you please try edibles? Let's try some things because I really don't want to Well, that's only you. if they call your bluff. If they say, I'm not going to give a pot, you can say goodbye. Or if they say, I'm not going to give All a right. pot, you can say, then you can start bargaining. Right. Maybe this bargaining happens before the ultimatum of like, hey, maybe my response is really tied to the smell. And like if – if he worked at a place, if he worked at a garage and came home with oily nails like your dad, that could be as a, much of a an trigger. unpleasant. Yeah. Go ahead. Use the word trigger. What I find interesting about this question is uh, the caller doesn't point to anything that is deficient in the relationship. Like he's when he's high, he doesn't pay attention to her. He forgets to call. He doesn't eat her pussy. Like there's no rolling out of how the pot is negatively impacting the quality of their relationship. If there is no negative impact, it seems just unfair. Like, my dad did this. I didn't like my dad. Therefore, you can't do it if you want to be with me. Not pot's a problem in our relationship irrespective of my dad because of X, Y, and Z. Right. Well, I think her her kind of nebulous response and ultimative is what empowers me to feel okay about being like, this seems like it might be an emotional thing tied to the smell. Mm-hmm. Um, what's – and that seems fair. You could never date a cigarette smoker, could you? No. Ever. Um, I don't think – I couldn't either. And they, there are lovely people who are cigarette smokers. Some of the smartest, finest people do this stupid thing with their mouths. <laughs> stupid, disgusting, smelly, gross. Expensive, killing thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the bar, I mean, I think there could be some productive bargaining because her response seems so tied to this vague smell of the past. Daddy issues. Yes, which are huge. Just because there's a clever name doesn't mean they're not terrible. <laughs> um. So, yes, what's the question? I forgot. It went in my pothole, man. Hey, Dan. Um, I am a single female, West Coast, uh, late 20s. Anyway, you talk a lot about how people should maybe smoke a little bit of weed to loosen up in the sack. And I do that often. I've had a kind of douchey past with lovers back in the day and not respecting me and I'm with a really great guy now, and I have a hard time initiating. My libido isn't quite where I'd like it to be, but if I smoke a little weed, I am ready to go, and I have a great time. So what I would like to know from you is how do you recommend people weaning themselves off of weed to get excited about having sex again? Because the way I see it is weed is kind of like a crutch, like an antidepressant or something to kind of help you or coach you through getting through a hard time. So I don't want to have to smoke weed every time I want to enjoy sex. I might have to kick this question right to you because I, I don't think I can answer it. How do I recommend people wean themselves off of weed? I don't recommend that people wean themselves off of weed. Yeah. It, sounds, it seems like you found a wonderful thing that works. And it's like, how do I wean myself off this emodium? It's like, well, <laughs> you don't have to, you know? Like, it is is your weaning urge tied to this kind of like grit that still hangs to weed the shame yeah and maybe it's maybe she lives where it's illegal and that is a little grit for her um as far as how you would try it like there's all these tricks the closest thing i've I've seen is like if you took the time to do as many deep breaths without a bong as you did on a bong and focused (laughs) on yourself and just got in the moment that would be my best bet for like step one attempt of how to do this Mm -hmm. um she seemed to tie the the weed to being more of the initiator um, so if you just need weed and more for the of a time. libido kick into oh, gear okay. that she's sort of, she says her libido isn't where she'd like it to be, but when she has a little weed, boom, she's initiating and she's yeah. into it. Do people, do you get questions like this about porn? Exactly one for one about porn like this? 
Like rarely I feel, feel weird about that. We that porn gets me horny. Or do people are people fine with that? People are fine with that. They should. It should be exactly the same. Well, maybe you know. I wouldn't want to read her mind, and we can't read her mind. But perhaps <laughs> oh, the problem is that you know some people when they smoke pot, you know, it affects their memory yep. and their sense of time. And maybe she'd like to, in the moment <laughs> during sex, be fully present in a way that pot, while it instills the desire, it impedes the sort of being fully present during. And she wants some of that latter. Is that possible? I guess, but it seems like she wants to be fully present for this thing she doesn't really enjoy. It's just like oh, – Except, <laughs> except when she's lightly not so present and then it's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah, like this works. Doctor, doctor, it doesn't hurt when I don't go like this. <laughs> then don't stop not going like that. And – or there there are, are things where you – if she paid very close attention to what got triggered by a um, weed encounter and be like – Look for that or what could I do to make that happen? A lot of people – it might be that thing of like it's not sexy to ask for what you want. It's like be a grown-up. Ask for what you want and maybe pot puts her in a place where it's all just natural and it it's not as – it, it takes some of the mystique if you have to like apply yourself and keep your feet on the pedals of your own sexuality. You say in the book that pot is not an aphrodisiac. Right. It, I disagree. Okay, I guess the thing is this that's a science fact of just like it doesn't Don't you whip out your science facts in front of me. <laughs> Put that back in your pants. I don't want the to Bible see your says. smelly science fact. <laughs> um so apparently it's not an actual aphrodisiac. It won't will not instill sexual feelings, but if you happen to have sexual feelings in yourself at that time, it can greatly enhance your enjoyment of them, your commitment to them, your ambition. See, see I, I count as a, as an aphrodisiac and I know it's an improper use of the term <laughs> things that disinhibit Right. Because what pot does, and probably you probably have, call her, a fine and active libido, but you have inhibitions that block you from tapping into that and letting that out. And pot dismantles those inhibitions. It disinhibits you. And in that way, it kind of functions, even though it isn't technically no, an aphrodisiac, yeah, it functions as an aphrodisiac. It makes me wonder what an aphrodisiac really – are there actual aphrodisiacs that fill the thing of like there could be a lady who – is the least horny person in the world that you no. give her an acorn and she goes crazy. <laughs> so I agree with like inhibitions. Spanish are the fly, same oysters, <laughs> chocolate. Wine. No, there really isn't actually anything that functions literally as right. an aphrodisiac. So the best we have are these disinhibitors. Exactly. Yeah, which seems true. And that's where like if this – this is going to make you squirm, Dan. If this lady and her man like – did yoga together. At least they'd be so happy the yoga was over they could fuck. <laughs> <laughs> That now I see the upside of yoga. Now I finally understand why Nancy Hartuni and the other Tech Savvy Outreach Youth go to yoga and then roll into the podcast studio smelling like cattle. <laughs> I see what's in it for them. The book is Weed, the User's Guide, a 21st Century Handbook for Enjoying Marijuana by David Schmader. Go online, order one now. It is as funny as David is and as informative as I struggle to be. <laughs> Thank you for having me on your show, Dan. It's Thank so good to see you. It's good to see you too. Hi, Dan. 38-year-old bisexual male Midwest. Been in an open relationship with a miraculous woman for six years. And uh, we've been open the whole time since the start. It happened really organically. Uh, it's been a really beautiful thing. We're engaged. We both still date other people. Uh, the question that I have is after six years, my desire towards her is a little bit lower than it had been, obviously, at the onset. We were hot, heavy. It's really, really good for, you know, five years-ish. And uh, over the last year, that's just kind of waned, and I know it's making her feel a little bit 
less desirable and things of that nature. And it's, I just don't want to hurt her feelings. She's a wonderful woman and I love her to death. Um, I'm still very turned on by new people and 38 years old. I've always kind of been turned on by new relationships. That new relationship smell is uh, something that kind of drives me and, and keeps me keeps me going. Um, I don't want to hurt her feelings again. And um, I'm just wondering, you know, is there anything that I can do to be, I don't know, to pick that back up? We've kind of already done a lot of the threesome things and a lot of experimentation. We like, I don't, I don't know, there's just much else that we can try. Um, so there's, there's not about introducing something new. Uh, I don't know. I just want to be really sensitive to her feelings and I still would love to go down on her. I love to hear her come. And uh, ultimately I just am not getting to orgasm myself because I'm kind of bored and uh, you know, been doing it for six years. So uh, any advice you have, that'd be great. Thanks a lot. My sex advice podcast is going to be so amazing and so effective when I finally perfect or can commission someone to perfect and build a goddamn time machine because so many problems, the solution to so many problems require a fucking time machine. Here's what you need to do. You need to get into my prototype coming one day time machine and go back six years and not propose to this woman, not put on the table a lifetime commitment to this woman. Look at what you know about yourself. You like that new relationship smell. You need to be with someone who either Forever, you need to be married to someone who feels the same way, who wants a primary partner and isn't particularly invested in that relationship, their primary partner being a sexual relationship or a sexually exciting relationship or a sexually roaring relationship, that that you both seek outside the relationship. And inside the relationship, there's intimacy, there's familiarity, there's connection, but not a sexual connection, that that's not the driver of it. That's not the battery. But you propose to somebody Despite knowing of yourself that this is a fact about you, that you lose interest, that you are primarily aroused by newness and new people and that new relationship smell and that new relationship energy, and you committed to someone who wanted you to be not you. You committed to someone that you knew or should have known you couldn't, shouldn't, wouldn't have committed to. You committed to someone that you knew or should have known not to make that kind of commitment to because you weren't on the same page. Now, maybe I'm being unfair. You're only 38 years old. You've been together six years. Maybe you didn't know this about yourself until now. Well, you know it now. And you owe it to your fiancé to level with her now. Maybe you can still be married. Maybe you can still be together. But your sex life is never going to be what it was because you're a newness of file or whatever they would call someone with your particular kink, groove, needs, interests, and she will never be new to you again. So put it on the table and then she gets to decide whether she's willing to settle for you and settle for this. If she isn't, then you guys call it a day. Hi, Dan. I am a 24-year-old straight female living in Texas. I'm calling because I've got a relationship quandary and no one in my life can really give me an unbiased opinion on what to do. I've been in a monogamous relationship with a great guy for almost four years now. He's wonderful, empathetic, attractive, intelligent, all of those great things. But about two years ago, my desire to have sex with him just completely evaporated. I'm still interested in having sex with other people, just not with him. And we tried for about a year to spice things up with 
toys and classes and all kinds of things, and nothing really worked. So I got up the courage to ask if he would consider an open relationship and was just definitively shut down. Not a possibility, offended that I asked. So for a year since then, we've just sort of been struggling along, him feeling hurt that I don't want to have sex, me feeling like shit for making him feel bad. And at this point, I just feel pretty done. Like, I don't want to resign myself to this stale, passionless life, even with somebody that I really love. And I just can't help but feel that by staying in this relationship, I'm missing out on some of my best years of potential dating. So here's what makes it complicated. Like I said, he's a really great guy and he's really great with my family. Everyone I've talked to about it in my family has basically told me that I'm being selfish, that I have unrealistic expectations for how relationships should be, this is just how it goes, etc. And as I mentioned before, I live in Texas. So while 24 might be considered young in places like New York, in Texas, my family's basically looking at me like I'm an old maid and worried that if I break up with my boyfriend now, there will be no one else and I'll die alone. So what do you think, Dan? Should I continue to stick it out in a loving but passionless relationship that feels stifling, or should I make a break for it? Well, the solution, the time-tested solution, obviously, is for you two to have a child together. That will totally reignite the spark. No, I'm lying. Break the fuck up with this guy already. Stop torturing him and stop wringing your hands and stop listening to your family. If your family likes him so much, they can fuck him. They can marry him. You don't have to stay with this guy forever because mom is fond of him and he can stay in their lives. One of the things that I think is crazy and stupid and wrong about the way people conduct their lives and their relationships is that when you break up with someone, your family has to have nothing to do with that person anymore and your friends are supposed to not have anything to do with that person anymore and vice versa. And that's just horseshit. You guys have been together for a long time at a particularly important stage of your lives. He's gotten to know your family well, and he can remain a family friend. That's really all he is right now, is a friend. Not just to your family, but to you too. So, break up with him. End it. And if Texas doesn't suit you, move. There ain't a wall around Texas yet, although we are thinking of building one and asking Norway to pay for it. There's not a wall around Texas yet. You can go elsewhere. You can move to Atlanta. You can move to Chicago. You can move to New York City or San Francisco or Portland or Seattle or anywhere. You can go. And I would encourage you to do that. Strike out on your own. Surround yourself with people who do not think a single 24-year-old woman is a dried-up old husk of corn. And have some fun and meet some people. And know that the research and the data shows that actually female desire drops off more quickly in a committed opposite-sex relationship than male desire, which is counterintuitive because women are supposed to be the monogamists. Women are supposed to be the keepers of the heart, the police who patrol male desire and keep men focused on one partner and a primary partner. But actually the research shows that women are aroused by variety and freedom and newness and new experiences as much or more than men are. And right now, all this guy symbolizes to you is what you can't have and what's not allowed. You can't have sex. You don't want to have sex with him. You're not allowed to have sex with anybody else. You're not allowed to break up with him because your family says so. Well, you are allowed to have sex with other people once you end this relationship. And you are allowed to break up with this guy 
with or without your family's permission, not the 16th century or the 21st century in Pakistan. You are free to make your own choices, go your own way, end this relationship, fuck other dudes. And don't let anyone tell you that by dumping this guy, you're being a selfish bitch who's breaking his heart. Because right now, by staying with him, you are being sadistic and he's being fearful. This isn't working. And you guys are making each other miserable and you are destroying his sexual self-confidence, his ability to tap into his own desires and his own libido, staying with him. The longer you stay with him, the more damage you are going to do to him. You are doing him no favors. And your family, they're doing him no favors by encouraging you to stay with him. Because to be on the end of that kind of sexual rejection, to be on the end of that kind of sexual negation year after year after year is shredding. Hi, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old woman from Philadelphia, and my best friend from college just moved in with me. She's really awesome, and we get along great, but there's one problem. She speaks with her boyfriend in baby talk 100% of the time. I'm not joking. It's like, oh, baby, can you pass the salt? Yes, sugar, he's a salt. Oh, you call me sugar, and you pass the salt. It's like that's, that's how they talk to each other. Um, a little bit of background, this couple has been dating for about a year long distance and my friend just moved in with me to be closer to him. Um, a few months ago uh, in the winter, uh, we all, uh, that couple, me, my boyfriend and another couple spent a weekend together and it was so bad that my boyfriend and the other couple, um, uh, they just tried to avoid this couple as much as possible. Um, because it was really hard to have like a um, an adult conversation on one end of the table and then on the other end of the table. So um, when my boyfriend learned that my best friend was going to move in with me and be my roommate, um, he tried to veto it. And when it's just, it just really worked out with me and my roommate and I really like her. So I, I uh, did not adhere to his veto, but he said that he is going to avoid them at all costs. So that means instead of coming over a couple times a week, like he used to, he comes over like rarely, like maybe once every other week and not for very long um, because he's trying to avoid this couple being there together. So I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to just suck it up and just be happy for my friend, which I am. I'm so happy that she's happy and this guy's really sweet and he treats her really well. She deserves that. Or to talk to her and to ask her to knock it off, which I don't even know if they can. And I don't want to make her feel bad and I don't want to shit on this newfound love that she has. So what do you think I should do, Dan? It is, of course, tempting to answer this question entirely in baby talk. It's also obvious that I might answer this question entirely in baby talk. So I'm not going to stoop. I'm not going to go to the obvious. I'm just going to say that, you know, with the caveat that maybe they're littles and we don't want to be little phobic or annoying infantile BS phobic either. Just tell her to knock it the fuck off. Just when it happens, all of you go silent and stare at them. And stop speaking. This is the way you do it. This is the opposite of use your words. You're going to use the opposite of your words. You're going to use your silence. And when you're with them and they start in with this goo goo gaga horseshit, all of you shut up and stare at them until they look at you and go, what, what? And then someone, 
the duly elected representative of the group, says, do you know how annoying that is when you two speak to each other like your toddlers? It's really annoying. So you might want to reserve that for when you're alone. Repeat as necessary until it stops. And then you can have it out with your friend if you really want to. And I I think you should. You should have it out with her. Because God forbid that these two are so unself-aware that they might pull this shit, oh, I don't know, at a work event in front of a boss, that there are people that they might do this in front of where it could have real consequences besides just my boyfriend won't come over anymore. Like you might not get a promotion because your boss thinks you're insipid and that you have poor judgment. Poor judgment. It's very important. People want people around them who have good judgment. It is a display of bad judgment to assume that other people want to hear this kind of oogly googly Sweetums talk because people generally don't. So you will be doing just like the previous caller will be doing her fiance or boyfriend a favor by dumping him. You will be doing your roommate, this woman who is your friend that you claim to like very much. You will be doing her a favor in the long run by knocking this shit out of her by slapping the baby talk out of her hands. Hi, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. I have a question for you about dirty talk. Um, I'm a 26 year old um, straight female from the Southwest. And I hooked up with a guy off of Tinder this weekend for the first time. It was very fun. Um, but while we were you know, in the act, we were talking a lot, saying things like, you know, this belongs to you. You're the only one. You know, this dick is yours kind of thing. Sort of in a break, we sort of were like, oh, do we really want it to be like that? Uh, you know, a sexually monogamous kind of agreement off of someone that you just met for the first time that and I obviously am not very much interested in that and I know this is a kind of use your word situation if we do decide to keep seeing each other but I just sort of on a more general term you know how accountable should you be for what you actually say during sex you know dirty talk is fun and people have different wants and desires but after it's all said and done you know are you should you really be held responsible and accountable for those sorts of things that you say or is it all kind of fair in love and war and bed it's dirty talk it's not a contract and people say things in the heat of the moment that they may or may not mean and it's incumbent upon both to check in post orgasm post sex if either is curious about whether what was said was sincerely meant before making any assumptions going forward. When someone breaks new ground in dirty talk, when someone says something like this dick is only yours and this, you know, this pussy is only mine and da, 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 and it turns you both on and it's exciting to say, you can circle back later, maybe not immediately after let the glow be the glow. But the next time you guys hook up or you're getting together, say, those things you said, did you mean them? Was that your dick talking? Are those just exciting things that you enjoy to say? Because we haven't made an exclusive commitment explicitly, but we have said exclusive-ish shit to each other when we were dirty talking. Is that what you want? Is that a wish, that kind of dirty talk? Or is that just something that turns you on theoretically and hypothetically? Maybe at some point in the future, this dick will be all mine. But right now, it's only all mine at those times when it's all in me. And then you can just have a conversation about that. You can use your words. 
But yeah, don't make assumptions. People are breaking new ground during Dirty Talk. Check in with each other. Typically, people don't break new ground during Dirty Talk, but sometimes people do. Sometimes what people want, they say in vino veritas, in wine truth, sometimes PIV veritas or PIA veritas. Sometimes in Dirty Talk, things will come flying out of someone's mouth that they are aroused by, that they really want, and they really mean it. And it might be something that... At other moments, when they're feeling more inhibited, when they're in their head and not in their body, they might be shyer about saying or asking for. So that dirty talk can be an opening where you can then go there. You can have that conversation. You can break new ground not just while you're fucking but break new ground in your relationship and what you mean to each other and who you are to each other. And it's not just about loving or exclusivity. People will say things in dirty talk that are about kink. People will say things that are about power. People will say things that are about Whatever. Sometimes just shit comes out. Sometimes they mean it and sometimes they just like to hear it and they don't mean it. So you got to check in. An example of said but not meant. I have a female friend, totally into choking, likes to be choked, does it safely. You know, I don't recommend choking in any form. It's really hard to do it safely. People have accidentally really harmed a, a sex partner in choking or asphyxiation play. Don't do it. That said, I have a friend who does it and doesn't seem to have been killed by it. And the sexiest thing for her to hear from a partner in that moment, the sexiest bit of dirty talk that she scripts her guys or the guy that she's with now is for while he's choking her, for him to say, I could end you. She does not want to be ended, but she likes to hear it. She likes – because there's something about the power of that. She watched a little too much Dexter or something in her formative years. Who knows what it was? But those words, I could end you, those put her over the top and I have her permission to mention these things about her now – does she mean it? Does he need to check in with her later about whether she really wants him to end her? No, she doesn't really mean it, but it brings her to the edge to hear it said. So you always got to check in. Always check in. Don't make assumptions, particularly if it's something dark like that. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old straight female, and I don't have a sex-related question, but a love one I've been seeing my boyfriend for two years now. It's pretty serious, but he's always late. And I tend to run late for things too, so I kind of get it. But I mean, he's really late and all the, all the time. And it doesn't matter with, with whom he's late for me. He's late for his friends. His friends have actually asked me to do something about it. Like, hey, can you fix him? And he's late for his family. It's Mother's Day, right? And this morning, we were an hour late for his mom's Mother's Day brunch, which, by the way, was just a short walk from our apartment. And he doesn't seem to see a big issue with this. And if I ask him about it, he'll say he's doing the best he can. But I just don't really accept that. And the thing is, his family doesn't get that upset with him when it happens. His friends get upset. I get upset. But when it's his family on the receiving end, they don't really give him a lot of crap for it. And so I don't know if it's even my place to tell him that this is inappropriate or that it bothers me. It just seems very disrespectful. And he was upset when we got there because they had ordered their food without us. And he said, well, that's just, you know, it's common courtesy to wait. And I'm, I don't even know how to respond to that. So when someone is super, super late regularly, how do you deal with that? And 
can it be fixed? And, and if it can, what's the best way to have that conversation? Far be it from me to criticize anyone who is routinely running late, especially with the tech-savvy at-risk youth in the room glaring holes into me right now. The daggers flying around this room. I am regularly late for taping sessions for this year podcast, always running late. However, there is a kind of routine tardiness that is really, I think, tied to the narcissistic personality where the world starts, everything waits on me, the world starts when I get there, nothing happens until I arrive because I am the most important piece. I am the capstone in any social interaction, any social event. And I was thinking that, you know, maybe your boyfriend has that narcissistic, perhaps personality disorder quality when you got to that so revealing, so telling detail that he was furious at your mother and the rest of his family for having ordered their food when he was an hour late to brunch. That is more telling than the routine tardiness. If he just blew in an hour late, if he was always an hour late for everything and he was mellow about it and just liked to be fashionably late and then insert himself into the festivities or whatever else was going on and didn't then cause a fuss or a ruckus and then didn't engage in more attention-seeking negative behaviors, already attention-seeking and kind of a negative attention-seeking kind of behavior to be routinely late, but then to have a fit or a meltdown because other people didn't wait for his majesty to arrive before kicking off mom's brunch? Yeah, that's a problem he should be unpacking with a therapist who can help him glean the insight into his own character that he clearly lacks. It's fine if he is late for shit for the rest of his life, but other people are going to get on with their lives. That means other people are going to order their food. The movie is going to begin. The wedding will start. The funeral will start without him. Whatever it is, it's going to begin without him. And then he has to, as gracefully as possible, insert himself into whatever's already going on when he arrives. He is not allowed to demand that everybody else sit on their hands until he swans in. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight female living on the West Coast. My question is, uh, I've recently discovered that I love cum. I really love being cum on and in and in my mouth and on my face and everything. And it's sort of disappointing to me that what is the best part of sex for me a lot of the time is also the end of getting um, you know, I obviously can finish myself off afterwards and that's fun and that's good for me and I can get off on having come on me while I do it. But, you know, sometimes I just wish that I could have all of the sex that we had before except start with the come and then have it afterwards. So I'm wondering if you have any interesting tips for that. Isn't the solution obvious? You should be having three ways with two guys and one guy should come right away and then roll over and have his little post-orgasm dude nap, which is a biological thing, not dudes just being insensitive. It's actually wired into dudes to get sleepy and disinterested in sex after their orgasm. And the other guy, the reserve, the spare, is still raring to go. And by the time he comes, the dude who rolled over because he came early and first, he'll be ready to go again. And you play your cards, right? You keep enough, I don't know, bottled water and Sliced up pineapple on the nightstand, you could keep rolling all night long. Doesn't ever really have to end. So find a couple of bye guys and live the dream. Hey, Dan, uh, 36 year old heteroflexible, I guess. Poly guy here. I'm, I've got a bit of a, a dilemma. I've got, I'm dating this 
girl who's also Polly and, and she's married. I'm also married, but so we're having our own thing going on. Um, and so we slept together a few times and I get a random message on my phone and it ends up actually being her husband asking me if he wouldn't mind just like chit chatting with me. Uh, he seemed very um, sort of white flagish, meaning he wasn't like coming at me by any means. He just really wanted to like find out who I was and all this other jazz. And I said, of course, I'll meet you. No big deal. Um, my issue now is I feel terrible that his wife doesn't know that we are talking. Um, so this is only yesterday. So today I messaged him saying, listen, this is sort of your household to manage and, and, and your wife to manage. But I said, I want to be on the record that I really think that she should know that you reached out to me because I said, I think if the roles were reversed and my wife sort of went behind my back and was talking to a girl I was dating and then they ended up meeting each other and discussing things, I would feel betrayed. I don't know what to, to say otherwise. I just kind of going with my gut here and I kind of feel like he should say something. And if he doesn't, should I say something? He should say something. If he doesn't say something, you have to say something because your first loyalty is to her. She's the person that you are intimate with. She's the person that you're having sex with. She's your secondary partner, whatever label you're putting on her. And your first loyalty is to her. And if you continue to fuck her and then she finds out that you had met secretly with her husband and you guys were having ex-party communications, she may rightly feel betrayed, spied on, misled, lied to, by omission, but lied to. That this is something that you should have known that she would obviously want to be brought in on. So, yeah, talk to her. Tell him you're going to tell her so that he can get out in front of it and tell her first. But then if he doesn't, you should tell her. That said, this is kind of a red flag. Not that he's waving all by himself, but these two together are waving as a couple. This sounds like drama. This already is drama because here you are wringing your hands, calling me. We're in polydrama land because you're being asked not to say something to the person that you're with by their primary partner and there's secret meetings going on. It's drama. And it's been my experience that people who engineer drama, and this is engineered drama, people who create drama, like life and relationships, even without any effort, without any intention, drama arrives. You don't have to code for it. It just comes. And here you have these two people who've created drama. And he created it. Maybe she's complicit in the creation of this drama. Maybe, and we can only speculate, he's only comfortable with her having a regular sex partner or a boyfriend that he's met and been able to look into the eye of. And that has spoiled relationships for her in the past. And she's insisted that he stop. So now he does it without telling her so that he doesn't then freak out at her or insist that she stops seeing guy. Who knows what the real story is? You don't, I don't. There's only two people who know what the real story is. And that is the drama creators, this couple. Maybe she's innocent in the drama. Maybe he is completely generating the drama all on his own. Usually in a case like this, it is drama that the couple is generating together. And it now involves you. And you have a right to step outside that drama and say, hey, your husband called me, began texting, we met up, and he told me not to tell you. I'm not comfortable with that, so I'm telling you guys, here's your drama back. You set it down, and you back away, and they work that out. And then if they can diffuse that drama, if the curtain goes down, you can step back in. 
but only if, if the curtain goes down on that drama. If the curtain never goes down on that drama, if they keep it up, if this gets resolved, but then it's something else, I promise you the something else's that you will resolve one at a time will begin to come closer and closer together. Because there are some people in polyland, just like there are some people in single land and some people who in couple land who think being in relationship is about resolving conflict. It's about having screaming fights and make up sex. And that's what turns them on. And they drag people into their drama and their bullshit and involve them in it. Who would prefer not to be involved in drama, would prefer to have sex without the confrontations and the arguments and the makeup sex and all the rest of it. So keep your eyes open. If you say or he says and the truth is out there and they resolve this, if something else comes along, if there's a new secret communication or thing going on in the next month or two, it's just going to keep coming and you're not going to want to keep seeing this woman. Hi, Dan. I'm calling regarding the call in episode 499 from the girl who found the guy who she was uh, dating on the Internet might be a sex offender. Uh, I only wish you had asked her to have the conversation where she kind of calls him out in kind of a public place like a restaurant or a cafe. She sounded like a smart person, and I think she would probably do it. But let's say they were to have it at his place or her place where they're just kind of alone by the two of them. What's to say that he doesn't become one of the statistics that she had then rattled off about repeat offenders? I don't know. Just a thought. And we're going to leave it. Actually, we're not going to leave it there quite yet. Uh, we have to acknowledge a big thing, a big deal, a big anniversary here at the Savage Lovecast. This is our 500th episode, our 500th installment of the Savage Lovecast. I want to thank Nancy Hartuni and the producer of the Savage Lovecast since week one. I want to thank the tech savvy at risk youth. And I want to thank uh, Barack Gaster, who is our oldest, longest serving regular guest expert who joins us in the studio today to help celebrate. So good to be here, Dan. So good. So I have a bottle of champagne, which now I know to be medically necessary because I saw reports everywhere of this study that showed that drinking two to three glasses of champagne a day or a week, I'm just going to go with a day, could stave off dementia and Alzheimer's. So I hope you will join me, Dr. Barack, in having some celebratory but also healthful dementia forestalling champagne to mark the 500th episode. Cheers. So who knew about the health benefits of champagne? I didn't. And after reading this study, Dan, I still don't. (laughs) Oh, no, no, don't. Don't bring, don't hit me with your science and your facts and your empiricism and your data on what's supposed to be a happy celebratory occasion. I mean, everybody wants to stave off memory loss. Like the, the number one thing that people are the most afraid about is losing their memory and losing their, their acuity, uh, their cognitive acuity as they get older. And so they should be drinking champagne. And what better way to do to it celebrate? Than All of you out there listening should drink some champagne to celebrate. But it's just not true, Dan. It's just not true. It's uh, rock. Uh, this is um, this is such a crappy study that this <laughs> this is twenty four rats that were aged rats. So they were fifteen months old rats, and there were only twenty four of them. But of so those, a small sample a size. a really small sample size. Of, and of rats, not humans. <laughs> of aged rats. And, but not, and only eight of the 24 even got champagne. So there were three groups. There were three groups of eight rats. One group got champagne. One group got 
sort of fizzy, sugary water, and another group got fizzy, sugary water with a little bit of alcohol added. And so they were trying to show that the the phenols, the uh, okay. flavonoids, cut to the chase. Cut to the chase. Are work. there any yeah. health benefits to champagne consumption? <laughs> no. What we do know is that excessive alcohol use is very, very bad for the brain. So people who drink more than three or four drinks a day um, have a higher risk of dementia. Okay, so the way this study was spun in the media as drink as much champagne as you possibly can between now and being in adult diapers to stave off dementia, that was irresponsible. That's dangerous, absolutely. And, and, and I drink it to celebrate the 500th episode of the Savage Love Cast. Congratulations, Dan. That's Cheers. Like, I mean, 500 is, is a lot of shows. Cheers and, to Nancy. You know, this is, this is such a great show. This is such an important show. You are and, doing... and you're always such a buzzkill when we have you on. We <laughs> have some like great science facts, great sort of Dr. Ozzy medical bullshit, and you come on and you just puncture it. Okay, there are worse things we could be talking about drinking on this show because <laughs> you've come on this show like to give advice to people who wanted to drink their piss. The champagne has to be better That's for us. So much better, Dan. And than you, drinking piss. I would so much rather drink champagne with you than drink urine. <laughs> <laughs> or even talk about drinking urine. Or even urine. talk about drinking We didn't even urine. have to talk about it, but I brought it up. I, I, I appreciate that. Because I know how traumatized you have been by those conversations and how in terror you are of someday some sort of Google algorithm linking you professionally the podcast and your rock solid advice about drinking urine which is again you know pretty sterile <laughs> not so bad like champagne in moderation, in moderation absolutely and have no unrealistic expectations about the health benefits yes. because there are none yes um, okay what does science tell us about <laughs> celebratory cupcakes absolutely thumbs up absolutely thumbs up let's pass these around mm -hmm. and one for you one for nancy yeah, i mean so right so i would say alcohol in moderation is absolutely it's fun, and it may be even good for you, um, but the idea that champagne... Well, you're just circling back to the buzzkill. I will, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to move that's, on to cupcakes and parties, <laughs> and you just you just want to grind this point home. <laughs> Put down the fucking champagne. I will, yes. I mean, at, at heart, I want to do good in the world. Um, just so like, the people just like who you. saw this study out there and studied foie gras goosing grandma just put the funnel down her throat and <laughs> dumped champagne into her. That was not the right thing right. to do. That didn't help. I did know. It? That's what they, th these were aged rats. These were, these were <laughs> rats towards the end of their lives and they were, they were pumping them up and it, and it maybe it helped, but they were rats. I don't know. But yeah, but yes, congratulations, Dan. Thank this you. And thank really you for your support over the years. Thank you to everyone like Barack who's contributed to the show, all the guest experts, all the scientists, all the researchers, and most importantly, all of you who've called in with your questions, with your comments, with your feedback, with your anger, with your bile, with your praise, with your love. We appreciate it. It's been such an honor and such a pleasure to be in your earbuds all these years, all these shows, all 500 of them. So on behalf of me, on behalf of Nancy, on behalf of the tech-savvy at-risk youth, we are going to leave it there, there with gratitude. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow David Schmader on Twitter at David Schmader. And be sure to pick up his book, Weed, A User's Guide. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by its founding producer, Nancy Hartunian, and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with our installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.